I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode from our Yesterday's Heroes series. Uh, today, we're joined by one of the the, the, the members of our squad that are certainly the, the few squads that helped us to reach nine in a row. Um, his name's Neil Murray. Neil, good afternoon. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, hi. How are you? I'm uh, happy to be here. Good, good. How are you during all this lockdown and all the stuff that's going on in the world? Um, that's fine. You know, I mean, fortunately, I, I work uh, with a company that um, we haven't really seen any downturn. We we still have the same kind of level of work uh, day in, day out. So my routine hasn't changed too much in that regard. And yeah. obviously trying to get out running as much as I can as well, just to kind of lift the, the lockdown blues, yeah. you know. But um, no, I mean, I, I'm coping fine with it actually as it happens. So yeah, okay. all good. I think once we get the football back a wee bit, it'll be a wee bit of normality. <laughs> Aye, well, I suppose that's something that's been missing for some time. And um, aye, you, know, you always look at Saturday results shows or whatever, and you wait for the results coming in, and that's been a bit of a miss, you know. But um, aye, hopefully we'll get there sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about, obviously, your upbringing, how you got to Rangers, etc., because you're one of youth youth players and stuff. Um, talk about a wee bit about what it was like as a youth player at that time. Sure. Um, and then, obviously, graduating into the first team and becoming a, an integral part of, you know, our squads that year and our teams that in the years to get us the, the success that that team you were a part of, really, I mean, that was my era growing up. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine in a row is incredible to me. So that's, and it's a real nine in a row, remember, it's no a 8.5 halfway through a season and get cut short thing, you know? Uh, that's what makes, that's what makes next season very important, I suppose, <laughs> you know, um, for, for Rangers to, 
to try and win the league next year would be uh, yeah important for a lot of reasons, but yeah, less that one you've mentioned, you know. Yeah, yeah. So did you join the club in 1989? Was it? Yeah, I started in 1989 uh, as a youth player, or or you know, what can you say? But wasn't actually apprentice at the time. Um, but it was in effect, it was a two-year contract between the ages of 16 and 18. Um, I'd been with the club since 12. Um, yeah. I played for a local Ayrshire team that, strangely enough, uh, we got a lot of attention uh, under 13 level because uh, we played Celtic, actually, in the Scottish Cup final. Um, and nobody really gave us a chance, and it was at Paul Medee. Uh, or some showground anyway over over that kind of way back in the day, um, mid eighties, and um, we drew two each, and uh, I managed to get two, and we got a replay down at air at Dam Park, and we won that, and um, you know, so after that, people, other kind of professional clubs, if you like, started taking notice, and and Rangers um, approached me when I was twelve uh, or thirteen, really. Um, and uh, after that, you know, I was I was at the club, you know, as was normal back in the day, sort of Easter holidays, yeah. uh, summer holidays, that kind of thing. So I was always, um, I was brought through the system, if you like. And, you know, when I got to like, uh, slightly older, it's uh, 16, um, you know, at that age, more clubs are asking, you know, Celtic, Dunn United, Norwich, Coventry, you know. But the fact was, you know, Rangers had shown a lot of faith in me as a, a young kid, you know, and... Um, I just thought, you know, listen, loyalty works both ways in a certain, yeah. to a certain degree, you know. So I was happy at Rangers and, and I stayed there. And, you know, I never signed an S form because, again, back in the day, people would sign S forms and that would tie them to a club. Um, I never signed an S form, so I was free to go and choose where I wanted to go, if you like. But, you know, that, that again, I didn't need to sign an S form to, to make a decision that I wanted to play at Rangers, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Growing up, did were you a Rangers fan? Did you did you who were your heroes growing up as a as a young kid? Do you know, strangely enough, um I liked more foreign football, you know, it was more kinda Platini or Boniek at, mm-hmm. at Juventus or, you know, watching World Cups and things like that, you know, and uh, don't get me wrong, my first game, my first actual game that I attended when I was a really young kid, you know, I can barely remember it, it was like eight Tens, I'm like, you know, that kind of age group was uh, was Kilmarnock against Rangers, as I say, I, I, you know, from Ayrshire, really. Um, yeah. And um, you know, my, my dad was a Rangers fan, you know, so uh, that was my first game was Kilmarnock Rangers. Um, and then actually, the, the little boys' club that I played with around that time, 10 11 uh, in Dreghorn in, in Ayrshire, my, my next game was uh, Rangers Ibrox against St Mirren. Um, and that wasn't very well attended back in the mid eighties. Uh, but again, it was a, it was a good experience, you know, to come up to the stadium and, and see what it was like on the pitch and and what was expected of the players and whatnot. So, uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't you know declare I was an out and out Rangers fan and Rangers mad, you know. But um, as I say, my, my dad took me to Rangers games um, and. Um, you know, as I say, growing up from the age of twelve, there was there was that sense of connection with the club. You know. Yeah, that's changed now. Though. Your Rangers mad now, though, because once you play for the club, it doesn't leave you, does it? Really. Well, that that's the thing, you know. And and I've been involved. I've been lucky to be involved uh, with Rangers in various levels um, yeah. at the club. And you're absolutely right. You know, the more you uh, are attached to the club, the more loyalty you feel, the more passion you feel. Um, and, you know, I, I look back in it and I think, you know, well, I'm 47 now, you know, but, you know, as you mentioned, I joined at 16 and 89. I was there till I was 23, you know, seven years. And then I had probably another five behind the scenes in terms of scouting yeah. and whatnot. So you're talking 12 years uh, out of 30 working years, if you like, you know, so you're, you're, you're talking, you know, almost half of your working life has is, is been a tax yeah. arrangement, you know, so um, I'm very grateful for that, to be quite honest, you know. Yeah. When when you were coming through the, the youth ranks, obviously, say that at 12 onwards, who were the kind of main 
who are the kind of main coaches that you would want to impress at that? Obviously, your own coach, but I mean, you hear now, like, you've got the head of the Youth Academy, Craig Mulholland, uh-huh. who obviously works closely with Stephen Gerrard, etc. Who, in your day, who would you want to really impress to, to maybe be noticed further up the tree? Aye, well, at that time, um, again, it was at that time, it was Gordon Neely was the person who was in charge of the youth uh, department, mm-hmm. and ultimately it was his choice to make decisions as to who was put forward for a professional contract. Um, you know, soonest to be fair, used to watch games, and he would have, of course, input into it as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I think also it's worth noting at that time, um, you know, it wasn't like in this day where perhaps there's 16 players at 16 years old or 18 players at 16 years old get brought on all at once. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, there were four. You know, so. It was actually me, Craig Flanagan, who's obviously now back at the club in the sports science uh, department. Um, Davey Hagen, who again played uh, for the club at first team level. And a guy called um, Ian McFadgen, who was from Highlands, you know. So that was the, that was the four uh, our age group who were, were taking on. And to be honest with you, in some ways you look back and you think it was probably a good thing because the four of us generally had a career in football, you know, whereas now you might bring on 18 kids. If one or two of them get through, you're doing well, you yeah. know. Yeah. So maybe being selective wasn't a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, as I say, I mean, it was, it was, it was competitive uh, to get a contract because we did have 15, 16 players at 16 years old and, and only four were selected and I was lucky to be one of them. So, um, and uh, yeah, and it actually, as you mentioned, 1989, uh, I think my first day, or certainly one of my first days, was uh, I remember it was a, a, a belting sunny day, and I was uh, getting the bus from uh, Irvine to, to Glasgow and then the underground. And uh, I heard people talking in the bus, and it was a day Mo signed for Rangers. <laughs> uh, and uh, I could see like paper headlines through the seats, you know. Uh, <laughs> Kind of, uh, aye, it was a, a, an interesting start. You know? <laughs> uh, obviously, you were there prior to, just like prior to Sunus, and then when Sunus arrived, you were still obviously a young kid, but Sunus arrived. Did you appreciate just how big a moment that was in the club's history that a superstar like Graham Sunus was going to come in and, and take the reins as manager and subsequently followed him being Terry Butcher, Chris Woods, Graham Roberts, you know, the, the, the English superstars that came at that time? I I think one thing, you know, when you're 16 or you know at that age group, you've got a lot of respect for players um, at first team level, experienced players, of course, that have been there, seen it, and done it. But one thing about Sunis is, and I don't know if other people have mentioned this or you've heard it before, he had presence, you know. Mm-hmm. So if he like walked into a room, you felt a presence. So there was always that. Um, what can you say? Uh, respect for him, yeah. um, but also he, 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 you know, he, he, maybe even a bit like the current manager. You know, um, by virtue of his, his professional career and what he's done, uh, he got that immediate respect to the the players round about him, and he understood the demands of that type of player. And, and I think, in a lot of ways, you wanted to emulate them or achieve what they achieved or try and do that you know so yeah I think everybody probably understood it was a big moment in Rangers history um and of course bringing big stars like Woods and Butcher for example um was a kind of show of intent really yeah uh, the club going forward at that point so when you then obviously progressed into the first team We've mentioned eighty nine. You said I think you said you were sixteen. You'd been getting into a dressing room, and there was still would have been the likes of Chris Woods, Terry Butcher, was Wilkins there at that time as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, what was that like for you as a young boy though, going into that? Because I mean, that's 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 mad when you think about it at that age getting into a dressing room with the guys. Well, actually, you know, back in the day, it was uh, that two year period between the ages of sixteen and eighteen. Um, you had what they would term like jobs to do, you know. So you'd be yeah. trained in the morning, you would have things to do in the afternoon. And and I had a wee spell of 
first team um, boots, you know, so I had to have a, a, a chunk of them and, and one of them was Gary Stevens actually. And, um, so he used to give me some of his Copas and, and World Cups and all that, which I thought was was brilliant, you know. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I became reasonably close to Gary. And I, I suppose in that regard, it was a good thing because you obviously had a lot of respect for the players, but at the same time, you thought to yourself, I'm within touching distance of this. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you, you, you saw how they would operate at close quarters and you think, I, I can do that. I can, I can be them. I can, I can make that, you know? So um, in that regard, it was, it was really uh, important, I think, to do that, that kind of thing, be amongst the players, you know? And, and I think my second year, I was kind of uh, in amongst it, you know, in terms of tidying up the first team dressing room after training and whatnot. And again, there was like small things, you know, I remember Sunis was uh, shaving, the st- uh, having a shave using the sink and all that, you know, and, and I remember him saying, you know, this is a, a time to get involved in football, finance is going to go crazy. You know, this was like 1990, 91. Um, and, uh, you know, again, these were kind of respected people that were giving you a little bit of encouragement, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Jimmy and Echo, the same. Um, and just generally, you know what, they were really good types, you know, as much as they were good players. Um, pretty much all of them were really good types. They looked after the young ones a lot and they they would, they would pass on advice and help you as much as possible, you know. So yeah. um, I think being amongst the players wasn't so much, um, for me anyway, it wasn't so much excitement and awe. It was more um, a realisation that I, I can fit in here. I can, yeah. I, can, I, can, I can be amongst this and it'll be fine, you know. Um, and then them treating you almost like uh, an equal, although you, you obviously weren't at that level yet in terms of... Um, a bit, well, ability, but experience, you know, more than anything else in physicality that, um, you know, they, they, they really helped you fit in. And, and, and they did take, I mean, if anybody was nervous around about them, they would take it all away because really they were just looking for you to be one of the group, you know. See, that, that's, that's interesting in itself, Neil, because for you going into that dressing room and looking at the players, for you to feel at that time, Watching them up close, how they train, how they can... Because, I mean, they do say, when you're a Rangers player, you're not just a Rangers player on that park for 90 minutes or in the, on the training ground. You're a Rangers player 24-7. There's a certain way you've got to conduct yourselves, a certain way you've got to be. So to, to actually hear you turn around and say, well, I believe that I can be like that, that's probably the reason why you did make it at a time when it was so... Probably one of the hardest times in our club's history to become a, to be a young player, you know, and, and oust stars like that. And the fact that you, you felt that belief, I think, is testament to, to your character and probably why you did spend so long at Rangers as a, as a young player. Aye, but I, th- I think, again, part of it is to do with, um, or just, just a small point in, in, in what you're saying about being a Rangers player 24-7. Uh, you know, back in the day, we used to have to wear a shirt and tie or a jacket to, to train in every day, you know. Um, and that was a standard that was expected Um and had been for years and years. And I remember being in a taxi once with a, a guy, an old guy, really old guy in the taxi, and he was, you know, your ranger son. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, that was, even back in his day, was an, a, an accepted practice that Rangers were a, a club of, of, of standards, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that carried through to, to obviously, the, the time when I started playing, and, and it was... Uh, it was a big part of it. And there, there are demands being a, a player at Rangers. But I think more important, as you touched on, was that, um, and I think that's why it was the, the seeds of success, actually. The team spirit was good. Mm-hmm. you know. So as much as there were top players and top stars, they also encouraged, uh, you know, it wasn't a us and them between yeah. like experienced players or, or top stars and young players. It wasn't like that at all. Um, in fact, and sometimes you just get lucky, you know, I, I remember, um, well, between the ages of 16 and 17, actually, I, um, well, I was still at university all the way through the first three years, but um, in the first sort of season, 16 to 17, I, I wasn't playing 
very often with the reserve teams, and probably rightly so, because there were older players that, that um, deserved their opportunity. But there were also players at my age that were getting chances, and, and I wasn't, you know, and it, it kind of it kind of annoyed me a little bit. But I understood it to a certain degree. But then you get a wee bit of luck. Uh, people take a shine to you, you know, and and Chris Woods quite liked it because I could like fire a ball to the back post, you know, from from the right hand side. I could just ping it to the back post at basically the back of his six yard box. But I could do it all the time without one after the other, you know, and it's the same, all the time, the same, the same, the same, you know. And uh, he wanted me to be like his warm-up guy, you know. So, and I would go sometimes with the first team or before the games and the first team games, I would be in the warm-up, you know, pinging uh, crosses to Chris Woods. And it's a, it's a small thing, but yeah. effect you're kind of preparing for the next step because, you know, that Ibrox, you're 20 minutes before the game, you're putting crosses into the box. You've got a certain pressure on you to do that because the first team goalkeeper wants you to do it, needs you to do it. Um, and, um, you know, he kind of introduced me in some ways to that first team setup. And then, as I say, in my second year, I hadn't played much, 16 to 17 in reserve football. And then in my second year, um, uh, I was going up to Dundee. It was a pre-season game at, at Dundee, and um, I, I was in effect the hamper boy. You know, I, I was going up to help Jimmy with the boxes or whatever, and, and unload the bus and blah blah blah. And, and it was, um, you know, it was a full house at Dundee. It was a, a preparation match for the season, and then soon as just declared right right back to me. I was like, <laughs> all right, then. you know. So. <laughs> It was um, it was quite it was quite funny, but it was a good game for me because, you know, Souness was playing and and um, it, quite often the fullback's the free player, you know, so he would get the ball and he would just roll it to me in the right back area and and you know, on that day in that in that game I, I did well. Use of the ball was good, you know, defending was good and and I, whether or not it was random, whether or not it was planned, whether or not it was like let's test the kid. I don't know, but that kind of was the start of it because after that, you know, when, when you play in that game, then when you go back down the way, other people at the club's opinions sort of change. Yeah. And then you start playing every week in the reserve team, you know. Um, and that's kind of where it all, all started. But again, it, 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 what I'm trying to say is it, it comes from the fact that it was a, in my opinion, anyway, it was a good group of people, uh, a good team spirit, and there was no real us and them or big time attitudes, you know. Yeah. Uh, stars in the, in, in the dressing room, they were, they were probably amongst the nicest guys at the club, you know. That's, that's admirable, you know, because usually you hear people say, oh, you never want to meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. But the fact that the guys actually took you on and took you under the wing, etc., that's testament to, to, the, to the guys. Did, did you ever see Sunus? Lose it? Did you ever see, you ever witnessed it and where soonest are the players? Because that was a time when it was a punch-up with Atman in the dressing room and it would just be forgotten about. <laughs> Aye, no, I mean, not really. I remember um, he, again, it was round about that time, actually, maybe two or three games after that, a pre-season game again, and we played Wraith Rovers um, in Kirkcaldy, and we didn't play well. I don't even remember if we, we won or we lost. I think it was like three two. I was a three two. I can't even remember. Um, but we didn't play well, and he had a team meeting um, after that, and it was just before the start of the season. And uh, although I played in the game, he's like, "No, nah, you don't. You're, you're not included in this. You stay out." And you know, I went back down to the away dressing room, and I, I think he had a right pop at them uh, after that game. And I think it was just a, a kind of um, nip it in the bud type yeah. of talk that. Don't think you're better than you are. It's the start of the season. You haven't made any mistakes yet. I slipped up. Let's just make sure that we're we're knuckling down and getting this right, you know. So um, I didn't really see him lose it in terms of physically, but uh, in terms of um, you know words, yeah. I mean that was that was a clear marker for the rest of the team, you know. Yeah. Soonest, obviously left the club to go and join Liverpool and it was announced that Walter would be stepping up, his assistant would be stepping up to take over. Did you feel, I mean, I suppose there's two parts to the question because Sunus obviously gave you that debut and that friendly and, and, and obviously believed in you enough to have you around the first team. Did you feel that 
well, actually, I'd like to have worked under him more because he saw me, he saw something in me to push me then further. Or then, obviously, the three thought three foreigner rule comes in, and did you think to yourself, well, actually, this this could be my chance because they can. He said it's got to be Scottish boys. I I mean, <clears throat> to be honest with you, you, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And it's a good question because you just don't know. Um, it might well have been that Rangers brought. Uh, different players and you might not have had the same opportunities to play Um, however you know I think history tells you a story anyway and Walter um, moving up to be the manager was clearly uh, written in the stars you know Um, and he had uh, no issues dealing with the players and getting the, the best out of the players and and you know, when at the end of the day, the person who gave me my first competitive match in uh, in professional football was uh, Walter Smith. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it, it was it was a good time to be uh, around uh, Rangers, and I, I've said this many times. Actually, I think um, it's very important, and it can't be understated the value of actually been there since I was 12 because everything's a step you know um it's a step you know 12 13 14 and people want to beat you so you have to learn how to deal with that it's a step when you go to foreign competitions and we won the Gothia Cup at 14s um or 15s and um you know that's another kind of step up that you need to try and uh, improve in a European stage if you like um, and then when you get into the reserve team, you know, again, it's only my opinion, but the reserve, the way the reserve leagues were structured back then was good. Um, like, let's say, for example, the first team played Aberdeen at Ibrox, and we'd travel to Pataudry and we'd play the Aberdeen reserve team. So yeah. you're getting the opportunity to play um, an Aberdeen's uh, first team pitch. Yeah. You're getting the opportunity to be involved around the Aberdeen dressing rooms and and you're playing against some some good players. I mean, I, I remember playing against players like Jim Bett, Theo Tenkat, you know, absolutely amazing football players, you know, and and, and you've got a, uh, each step as a progression, you know, um, and I think perhaps nowadays that's lost, that kind of apprenticeship, yeah. uh, if you like. Um, but it was it was certainly important, and then as I say, and then the next step being involved, warming up the goalkeeper at home, and then playing some first team friendlies, and you know, so everything was a was a progression. Um, and I think by the time uh, Walter was the gaffer, uh, I'd kind of served that apprenticeship, you know, because yeah. the, the second year, as I said to you, that, that I played or I started playing uh, for the reserve team, I think I, I maybe played it in excess, easily in excess of 60 games because I played in the Premier Reserve League on a Saturday and I played in every single Reserve League West game on a Tuesday and Wednesday. So, in effect, I was playing in every single league game twice, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think at that point, that's when people kind of know, yeah, you know, when you play 60 games in the reserves in one season, and consistently well, then you're ready to play. You know, yeah. if you can, uh, if you can handle the other parts of football in terms of the fans or expectation. But again, you know, there's probably, or there's not, there, there are none, or there are certainly not many better uh, judges of uh, character or, or personality than Walter Smith. You know, what was it like to to work under to play under? You've heard so many players say he was like a dad, a second dad to, to a lot of the players, and that's including the best, like Gaza and stuff like that. So what was he really like, you know, to, to work under as a, as a man first and then a manager? Aye, well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take it back a little bit. Um, when Walter was the assistant manager, um, we didn't really train much in the afternoon as young kids, which I didn't necessarily agree with, uh, mm-hmm. even at the time. I thought we needed more work. All young kids need as much work as they can get at a young age. But, you know, with other things to do, as I say, like first team dressing room, cleaning and boots and stuff like that, you know, so you maybe learn through playing games. But there was one afternoon, and I never forget it because it's it was kind of important in a lot of ways, but um, Walter took us up to Linfield Astroturf 
and he basically said, right, we're going to uh, work in a back four and I'm going to teach you how to play offside, you know. So for about an hour and a half or an hour, hour and a half, we're up in Linfield Astroturf. So it was me, Presley, probably Nizzy and Chris Vinicombe was your, the back four. And um, he basically, from, from zero, he coached us how to play offside properly in the space of an hour, an hour and a half. And then we would play like Air United, for example. I remember it was a, a, a lad, I think his name was Greg Shaw. And he was a good striker in the sense that he scored a lot of goals for Air United, but he would make straight runs, you know. So within, as I say, one session with Walter Smith in the Aston Turf at Linfield, I'd be playing beside Presley, right back central defender, both young kids, and would look and would see Greg Shaw running diagonal straight. And the two is would look at each other and just laugh and just step up, bang, offside, you know? Yeah. And and that hour and a half was important for me and probably for Presley in the rest of your career, you know? Yeah. Um, because it's an art defending at that time, especially playing offsides, you know, it was a, it was a good advantage and it was smart, you know? And and um, But that was only from one session from Walter Smith up in Linfield Astrotruff. Imagine that was Aye, um, so in terms of the coaching ability, you know, you know, sure. I mean he he had he could uh, he could work that magic with, with us as young kids, you know, that's for sure. Um but in terms of the man management and I think this is where um it's a particular skill and and as I've got older um you actually become to realise it a bit more that if you if you're operating at a lower level, it's probably more important for you to be a good coach, and then you can get the best out of the players, or you can improve players. If you're operating at a high level, the coaching part probably not quite so important because it's all about uh, fostering the team spirit, maintaining team harmony, keeping players feeling good about themselves. You know. And, and just generally re reading the moods and reading people's personalities. And as I say, that's where he was the master at it, you know. Um, and, you know, for some people like, you know, maybe like myself, McCoy, Stuart McCall, maybe he didn't really need to, or the Scottish ones in general, maybe he didn't really need to, um, what can you say, manage them too much. But the foreign ones or the English ones coming in, it's, uh, it's maybe more difficult for them to settle. And that's where he became, uh, or he came into his own, you know, integrating them into the team very quickly uh, as a skill. And, and it was important to do that, you know. Because um, yeah. you said you're there for 12, so you know two defeats away for a crisis. You know what I mean? Rangers, with, with these foreign players and the English players, and probably include Gascoigne and that at the start, when they came in, you can go away from home sometimes and a point's acceptable. But you know, Rangers, whether you're going to Parkhead or whether you're going to Pedodria or wherever, a point's not acceptable. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's three points. It's one a bust. And, and I suppose having you guys there as well, even yourself being younger, it still helps with the team to say, no, we need to win the day. We don't get beat. But absolutely, 100%. And, and, and this was clear to me from, from day one. Um, you know, you, you'd play in the reserve team and you'd have Davy Dodds or John McGregor raging, you know, about a draw, you know, don't get me wrong, we didn't really lose too often, you know, but, you know, it was, it was drilled into you at a very, very young age that nothing less than a win is good enough at Rangers, you know, mm -hmm. and that's always, that's never left me at all in terms of that's the expectation at Rangers, and even if you're not playing well, it doesn't make any difference. You could have you could you could have a, a terrible game and, and, and the team's horrific, you know. But if you win three points, then that's all that matters, you know. And if you play exceptionally well and you lose, that, that's for nothing, you know. It's all about winning at Rangers, and it's all about three points. And that's that was very clear to me from age of sixteen onwards, you know. Yeah, Go, going through, we need to touch on the the, the treble season. The season of the was it forty five games unbeaten, etc. 
for yourself, what was it like to, to be part of that squad, to play in games? Obviously, because there's, there's pride that plays that we had an unbeaten run that was, you know, lasted a hell of a long time, longer than a full season when you take it for 30-game season usually, you know what I mean? So what was that like for you as a young player still, stepping into that? Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it was fantastic, you know, and, and I think, to be honest, it was, uh, it was that, I don't know if it was a defeat or a draw up at Dundee, must have been a defeat, obviously, up at Dundee that um, changed things for me anyway, because I think it was at that point in time, for whatever reason, maybe Dale Gordon wasn't flavouring a month or certain other players weren't flavouring a month and I got an opportunity to play. Um, and that's what sparked the 44 unbeaten run was, was that game against Dundee. So yeah. I, I, I think, again, maybe it's a smart ploy by... The manager, you know, similar to Sunnis in terms of nipping the bud after that game against Ray Rovers, you know, it was early in the season, that game against Dundee. It's a bit of complacency creeping in. Does he see something in certain players he doesn't like? Oh, let's shake us up a bit, you know. And, and by shaking it up a bit, you know, the team goes in a 44-game unbeaten run. Um, and, you know, it was great to be part of it, obviously, but as I say, you kind of eased into it gently anyway because it's it's been a progression through through basically seven years, you know. Um, and you're training with the first team day in day out as well, so you know you're not really kind of phased by playing with them so much um, at that point when you're when you're in uh, the first team. But there was always there always was and that there always would be that uh, sense that you don't want to let anybody down. Yeah. You know that the, the the club demands victories. So there was always that kind of internal pressure on yourself to to make sure that you were part of the team. Uh, you didn't let anybody down. You won the games, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean the forty-four game unbeaten run was incredible, and uh, I actually played in the, the the game that ended at Parkhead as well, um, which was my first Rangers Celtic game actually. So um, aye, I experienced the highs and the lows that year. Obviously, you played. There was European football involved that year where we went to the semi-finals. And for whatever reason, which we now know about, uh, bravery, etc., whatever reason, Rangers ended up losing to Marseille. Was there a bit of feeling in the dressing room at the time? of Hately been sent off, things like that. Was there a bit of feeling at the time? Um, not really. I think we probably just approached the games in their own merit, you know. And if you look at it another way, Difficult as it was, we had the ability, or if we won in Marseille, you're through the group and you're into the final, you know? Yeah. Uh, we ultimately didn't win in Marseille. To be fair, we weren't good enough to win in Marseille. They were a better team in the night, you know? Yeah. And Durante's strike was, got us the draw and kept us fighting uh, to the next game. But, um, you know, it's it, I don't think at that time there wasn't too much talk about anything underhand I think that only probably came to light a few months later you know yeah. I do have a, a fairly interesting story on this uh, or a different perspective uh, I, I played in Sion in Switzerland with a guy called Jean-Jacques Edelé who played for Marseille at the time and he's actually written a book uh, Je ne joue plus, it's called. I, I'm not. I don't play anymore, or I don't want to play anymore. That kind of thing. Um, and basically, in that book, he touches on it. But he told me also in private. He said because um, uh, Jean Jacques was uh, he was prosecuted by the French authorities and banned for a certain period of time because of the sort of scandal with Valenciennes in terms of paying their players not to try. Too yeah. hard and you know, give up the game or whatever. So, um, but Jean Jacques said to me, You know, we, we bought that European Cup, and I said, well, How can you buy the European Cup? He said, Well, you drew with Bruges 1 1, uh, and we drew with CSK Moscow 0 0. So, at that point, we've got the same points, same goal difference basically after two games. Um, then the next game, you beat Bruges 2 1 at home. And we beat CSK 6-0. So within one week, they've gone from 0-0, a tough game, to winning 6-0. Yeah. I think that was uh, bought because then our goal difference is better than yours. That's like, okay. And then 
he said, okay, we go into the game against Rangers at home and we can't buy that game. So that was the that was the game that Tappy was really concerned about. That was his big problem, us, you know, because we, we, we couldn't be induced, if you like. Um, and then he said, and don't underestimate the last game. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Then he said, well, Bruges hadn't lost at home for something like 10 years. And they were a decent enough team, you know. And I said it was just 1-0, bang, boxage, six minutes, flat game after that. Nobody really bothered, nobody really trying too hard, you know. Um, so that was enough to get them through to to the final, you know. And um, without being direct or naming any names, he he basically hinted that along the way there would have been... Um, ways and means for other teams not to try too hard. Well, we had Jeff Holmes on the pod, and it's, it's to, to listen to it, and Jeff told a tremendous story. He never named the, the directors, but on that, he, he told a tremendous story that they were having the, the dinner with the Marseille directors, etc., um, at Ibrox. He says, and, and one of the Marseille directors took one of the Rangers directors and says, can you come outside? And he took him outside to the, to the top of the marble staircase and said to him, what what matters more, the Rangers winning or money? Mm-hmm. And the Rangers director says, I don't know. He says, where are you going with this? I don't know where we're going with this. And he says, well, basically, if there could be money involved for you to stand aside and let us go. And the Rangers director response was, I think it was either two or three things are going to happen. You either go in there, pack your stuff up and go. He says, you go in there, finish your dinner, pack your stuff up and go. He says, or three, I boot you doing that marble staircase and you'll never be back. And he got his answer, obviously. But coupled with what you're saying there, and, and obviously with that, that story, there's no smoke without fire. No, I know. And, and especially when it comes to like a few weeks later, as I say, this episode with Valencia N, and it's, yeah. that's public record. You know, the, uh, I think the French Football Federation had sort of phone records, and obviously they found cash and, and other things. Um, so yeah, there's no smoke without fire at all, you know. And it, listen, European Cup's a big prize, so uh, and it's I think Marseille is the only French team to have won the European Cup, really. So yeah, it was a a burning ambition at Tappy, and sometimes uh, these guys use all means possible to try and achieve something, you know. Yeah, we jump forward a wee bit to '95, '96, which I think, think technically is your last year at the club. Well, as a player. Um, yeah. But I saw the arrival of a certain Paul Gascoigne as we were going for eight in a row. What are your memories of Gaza? And that Gaza was, yeah, Gaza was, um, uh, to be honest again, Gaza kind of fit, fit the model, if you like, of what I spoke earlier. It was always very uh, helpful, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I only had the opportunity to play with Gaza maybe a handful of times. Um, as a pair in central midfield, and and he was always encouraging, positive, um, helpful, you know. Um, and uh, you know, as a, as a football player, I mean, people ask me this quite often. You know, who, who's the best player that you've um, played with, if you like? And my answer is always Gaza, because and people are sometimes a bit surprised of what about Loudrup and as much as Loudrup is a fantastic football player no no question you know one a Rangers great you know um but the reason I would say Gaz is because Loudrup could do amazing things in the final third and he could open up chances for players he could score goals I mean incredible what he could do Gaza could do that as well and he can run back and he can tackle you know so, for that reason, uh, I put Gaza as a more complete player, you know, because he, he could also, and people sometimes forget it a little bit, he could also do the graft, you know, he could also do the dirty side, he could put a foot in, you know, yeah. um, and, I, and I think I think that's something that some people sometimes overlook. Um, it was a, yeah, he was a tremendous football player. It, it, was, it was slightly different, I'll, I'll be honest with you, he wasn't really... You know, I was always kind of quite quiet and reserved and, and didn't say too much, whereas Gaza was the total opposite. You know, he, he's a life and soul. And um, 
Aye, he, he had a lot of attention from 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 his pranks, so everybody was up to you know. So we were kind of slightly different, or, or quite big difference in personality, you know. But um, that that doesn't detract from me saying, you know, listen, you've got to admire the guy. You know, he was a he was a top top player for for Rangers, and he was a top top player generally in his career, you know. Yeah, were you ever in the end of one of the pranks, or did you? You must have witnessed some of them at least on other people. Aye, well, there was one. Uh, not many people talk about this, and maybe there was, maybe not many people were around. Uh, but some I, I actually remember, and, and uh, there was a young lad at, at Rangers. I think it was Jazz Jutler, or there was another one. Any one of them, and they were in the the boot room, doing the first team boots, and you heard this almighty thud, and it's like, and then like kind of screaming, and it, whoa, 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 what's going on there? Gaza had an air gun and shot it at the guy. But he didn't actually shoot him, you know, he, he <laughs> meant to miss, you know, but he's, he's actually just, boom, popped this gun, and, uh, you know, there's like a kind of cap or a, a, a kind of bullet that lodged in the, the board about a foot above his head, you know. Uh, you know, everybody's up and, you know, everybody's in uh, fits of hilarity, you know, but uh, and you've got one wee guy who's white as a sheet and no move. But it was um, aye, that that was that was one that I kind of remember. I mean, there's the other stuff that people talk about. I suppose McCoy's thing about him breaking into his house and all that. But yeah. uh, that's the that's the one that kind of sticks in my mind, you know, because he, he was the type of guy that I think he was very he liked to be active, you know. So he, he would get up early and get the waders on and go fishing, and he always liked to do something, and you know. <laughs> And I think it was just well, an air gun or something, you know. He just, he just, he, he just liked doing stuff, you know. And and, and for whatever reason, they, uh, I, thought it was a good idea to discharge a, a, a rifle or whatever in a in an enclosed space, you know. I can only imagine if there's ever a guy that should never have controlled an air rifle. If Paul Gascoigne, I mean, who knows what could happen? <laughs> uh, jump on a wee bit again. Obviously, you mentioned you played in Switzerland, you played in Germany, you came back, you played. Dundee United, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Did Did you ever feel a wee bit kind of, you know, what what led to you leaving Rangers? How How did you know? Because obviously, the following year we were going for the nine. So was it your choice, or were you told you were moving on? Or no, it was actually it was my choice. And again, this this comes kind of round and full circle to Walter Smith being a, a certain type of manager and 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 being a good man manager. You know, the fact was, as as you kind of touched on, Gaza came to the club and. And that limited my opportunities to play. Um, well, as I say, I was fortunate to play with him a few times. But um, I remember, see, it's only when I look back in it now that I kind of understand how big the nine was. Charlie Miller the, said that. You know, I would have been, you know. Yeah. At that time, I was probably a bit more self uh, single-minded or selfish in the sense that I wasn't playing and I wanted to play. Yeah. So Walter said to me, you know, I'll give you a new contract. I mean, there's no no question of that. I'll give you a new contract. You know, it is, you know, a season, a big season nine and, you know, I want you to be here. And 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 I didn't even need to think about it. I totally rejected it out of hand and said, nah, I need to go and play. I, I want to play football, you know. When you've had a taste of three years or four years or three and a half years, whatever it is, a, as you say, you're playing 25, 30 games a season, you're playing cup finals, you're playing European games. To go from that to not playing, it's just not, it's not, it's not really what you want, you know. So yeah. um, I always knew I was leaving anyway. Um, and although, you know, again, I was grateful to my manager for, for offering me the opportunity to stay. Um, but in terms of going abroad as well, I always had it in my mind um, that I wanted to do that because at Rangers, as I say, 14s, 15s, 16s, we played in youth tournaments abroad and we, we did quite well. We won a few, we got to like semi-finals, we won and lost and whatnot. But, um, you know, it was something that I always wanted to try. And at the time, Gordon Neely, the youth coach, he said a similar thing. He said, if you ever get the opportunity to go, then go and try something different, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think... I knew I also I knew in my heart that if I signed for another Scottish team, it wouldn't be the same, you know. Yeah. Um, so I needed to take that opportunity to go and find something new. And it was also 
the first year of the Bosman ruling. So it was the first time that players could leave, in effect, for free at the end of their contract if they went abroad. Yeah. Um, now, by a strange quirk, I think David Murray had said this before, um, by a strange quirk, when I moved to Switzerland, Switzerland wasn't actually technically in the EU, so they were due money. Right. So I think Rangers did get something or they got money for it, you know, but um, I, I, I just knew that I was leaving. I wanted to leave uh, because I wasn't playing. I didn't really want to stay in Scotland. Um, so, and I wanted to play abroad just to kind of sample experience. So it, it was a progression that I knew in my mind it was, I wanted to happen, you know, so. Yeah. How, how did you get into the scouting then? Obviously, and coming back to, to Rangers, so you, were, you were chief scout at Rangers. So wait, wait, how did that come about to getting back to working for the club again? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, you and Chester had been at Rangers. Actually, you know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, the crossovers are actually quite uh, frequent, you know, but when I was 12, 13, you and Chester was a youth coach. Um, and he would take us in the Albion and, you know, go through like the drills that we had and whatnot. So I'd known Ewan since I was 12, 13. And then playing in the first team, Ewan was the first team scout for Walter and Archie. Um, and then managers after that, of course, you know. Um, so, you know, when I, when I stopped playing, then Ewan kind of got in touch and suggested, you know, would you mind watching a few games for me? And and whatnot, and, and I accepted, obviously. Um, but another part of it was I ended up um, doing a bit of commentary and co-commentary for Satanta with Bundesliga football, um, because I played in Germany before. So uh, they invited me to do that, which was great. And as a you know a consequence of that as well, when Ewan was at Fulham, he said, you know, if you're watching these games, basically three games a weekend, can you write me up some stuff? And... You know, I'll usually watch some Scottish games as well. So at that point, where Ewan went, I generally followed them. So, you know, it was Fulham and Norwich and Rangers. Um, and then, I, you know, the thing, the thing actually behind the scenes at Rangers, you know, I, I kind of fulfilled a lot of the, the roles. And again, you can learn the apprenticeship of that business as well, because, you know, I would do the opposition match reports, um, watching the opposition in advance of, Rangers playing them and then I would do you know recruitment reports for bringing new players um, and you kind of learn and cut your teeth at different levels you know so uh, Ewan had, I think when Walter was about to leave Ewan decided it was the right time for him to leave as well and he left to go to Norwich um, um, and that in some ways opened the door for me to, to stay and uh, and take over um, in terms of you know the kind of scouting network if you like you know um, which to be fair wasn't easy because um, Rangers at that era had a kind of fluctuating policy when it came to scouting and not for the good actually I have to say because I think when Alec McLeish was the gaffer Ewan left and there wasn't really a scouting network to speak yeah. of, um, you know. So bringing players, I don't know. I mean, listen, Alec had great success. He's a he's a fantastic manager. He was he was my manager at Scotland under twenty ones, and I wouldn't say anything uh, negative about him as a manager, you know, because he, he was again he was a, a terrific man manager, and, and he had great success at Rangers, you know. Uh, never take that away, but you know, during that period, there were you know signings like maybe a Pierre fan fan or a Vanoli or you know, there's a few others that maybe didn't have the success that they should have done. Yeah. And, and partly, or you could argue perhaps in part that was because there wasn't really any scouting network or effective scouting network, you know. So, um, you know, essentially when Ewan left and I had to kind of step up, um, we brought in Bomber, which was great. You know, he was full time and, and he was an older head and um, great to bounce ideas off of. But we still probably didn't have enough um, staff in terms of covering the ground. We had like four guys in England, which again was great. Uh, but basically we relied on a lot of the foreign players or ex-players, Rangers players, um, to either give us recommendations or if we 
had recommendations that we'd looked at and filtered, then we could call on these guys to, to help us with their advice as well. So um, I think fortunately now the club is way, way in advance of what it used to be. And I think the club is now uh, at the level it should be in terms of investment in um, a scouting department. And I, I don't also mean in terms of boots on the ground or, or, or staff numbers. I, I also mean in terms of what you use in terms of analytical tools or or, uh, or databases and the like, you know. Um, and it's good to see, actually, because it's it's um, for the cost of funding that department, it can generate a hell of a lot of money in sales, if you get it right. And it can also, as I say, avoid perhaps getting it wrong and uh, costing the club money, moving players on cheaply or, or paying, that, paying them up, you know. So um, I think it's a credit to the club um, for identifying that as a, a kind of area of weakness that needed improved. And obviously, Ross going in there at the moment. Um, he's been involved in the Premier League, at a leading club, and he knows what's required in terms of uh, uh, everything to do with the recruitment and scouting department. So, I mean, the club's in, the club's in good hands, you know. Obviously, you touched upon the time with McLeish when we didn't really have a scout network. I think that was kind of mirroring the, or certainly it should have been sounding the alarm bells that we were struggling financially and that probably the cost-cutting measures was even getting to that stage where scouting players was nearly becoming a thing for Rangers. You know, it's the, I mean, you hear McLeish going to France, you hear McLeish doing it himself at times, you know. He's a manager yeah. of the club, but ultimately he needs somebody at least one person, but I would imagine yeah. a scouting network is, you know, you've got people around the world and yeah. McLeish are doing that himself. So I think the testament, as you say, to the man and the man manager that McLeish is, they managed to deliver the success that he did. Yeah. But for yourself, when you became that and obviously Ali being the manager, how close did you and Ali work to, to identifying players? Were you restricted? Because during that time, obviously, we were going through financial turmoil, you know what I mean? We were in yeah. administration at times. Did, did, were you doing that two hands tied behind your back, basically? In a lot of ways, yes, because um, for a lot, a lot of reasons, actually, as well. But um, basically, at the beginning, it was fine. You know, we had, as I say, Bomber, we had four or five guys in England. We had Gordon Smith, who was, again, a, a slightly even older head, and, and he had a bit of experience and knowledge as well, which was good. Um, so as a team, it wasn't bad. However, one thing at Rangers certainly at that time, and, and it's only my experience at the time, was no one ever really told you the truth. Mm -hmm. As in the optics of uh, what should look good from a Rangers point of view wasn't actually refle reflected in the reality of what was going on behind the scenes. And, yeah. and one thing, for example, an example would be, you know, when, when, when actually the good point you made is in administration, we lost the English guy. So in effect, it was me and Bomber. Um, and then Bomber left, so in effect, it was I was the last man standing, you know. But you know, I would go to Blackpool often, you know. We'd look at uh, some players down down in Blackpool who were free and out of contract. I go to Middlesbrough; they were the same, you know. And you were talking about players that were free and out of contract, probably circa eight grand a week in wages. And I I remember saying to the gaffer McCoyston saying. Um, you know, what have we got to spend, you know? And we've got five million to spend. Yeah, but is that a fact? Uh, well, I brought it up at the board meeting and they, they didn't say no. Yeah. Yes, either, you know? So you could spend weeks and weeks and months, and that's only that's only me. So you one guy who's limited in terms of time and, and can only see so many games per weekend, and even if you had three or four others, you've only got so many weeks or games to take in over a period of time. And unless you know exactly how much you've got to spend, you're wasting your time. So I'd spend months going, as I say, watching team players at Blackpool or, or Middlesbrough and knowing through their agent or just general in the market, you know, they'll, they'll cost somewhere between eight, 10, 12 grand a week. And then and then the dove from above tells you three, four months down the line, that that's four grand. You're like, well, I've just wasted three months. Mm -hmm. you know? So then you're kind of starting from scratch again. So what I'm trying to say is if people were transparent at the start and the budget was clear at the start, then you'd be able to target the appropriate players. 
but Rangers being a, a political beast of it is, uh, yeah. some at the some at the time, some you know the chief exec at the time or whoever at the time, uh, they weren't really uh, transparent with the truth, you know. Um, Shock horror. Eh? <laughs> uh, that, that made it that that did make that did make it difficult. To be fair, you know, you can you can only operate if you know the parameters that you can operate within. Um, and uh, but again, I think it goes back to the point that at that time. I don't think there was too much stock placed on the scouting department. Um, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned it before about bringing players, even in Alex Day. You know, a Pierre fan fan was reputedly on a million quid a year salary. Um, and okay, he didn't play very much and he was probably paid up to leave. Miladinovic, Dragon Miladinovic, a transfer fee, salary, probably wasted as well, you know. But where I'm going with this is, Let's assume you allocate a budget of £300,000 a year in the scouting department, and that could be for staff and analytical tools and whatever else. Uh, it might be more now, who knows, I don't know. But um, that people would see as a cost. Yeah. But in actual fact, is it really a cost? Because instead of giving Pierre Fan Fan 20, 20, 20 grand a week off from 17, you know, and cut the players' wages, because you'll still get a player anyway. Yeah. But build, build the structure of the club first. And make sure that solid foundation is there. And you can always trim player wages or player budget to get what you want in other departments. But I don't think at that time it was a, a particular priority of um, of, uh, of Charles Green, or the chief executive at the time. You know, so yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the job was difficult um, at that point. However, as I say, I'm absolutely delighted to. Uh, to know that Rangers now um, have got the, the right people on board, yeah, right people at the helm, and they're investing the money in that department because essentially the way I look at it, it's the lifeblood of the club. You know, you bring players to put in the pitch to keep the fans coming, to keep them entertained, you know, to keep their money flowing. Um, and as a byproduct of that, if you get it right, you can sell the players for a lot of money and make the club a profit, and and you know. Uh, as a model of selling players and reinvesting, you know, and, and, and again, as a kind of further byproduct of that, you're, you're generally limiting mistakes. You know, yeah, you'll yeah. always have a mistake, you know, for whatever reason, players don't fit in or, you know, they might have problems off field or whatever. There's, there's loads of reasons that players don't work out at clubs or, <laughs> as you know, the expectation ranges is high to win every game and maybe players can't handle yeah. that. You know? There's always going to be players that don't work out. Um, but I think the scouting department, have an effective scouting department lessens the chances of those mistakes happening, you know. Yeah. Uh, so again, yeah, I mean, I, I think and hope that Rangers are in a good place at this point in time to, to, to take that on, you know. Obviously, I'm conscious of the time, Neil, and you're a busy man, and obviously, to ten, that's the best part of over an hour now that you talk to us, and it's been fascinating, but would you ever want to get back involved with a, a club again in, a, like, like in terms of a chief scout role or, or some role that's actually just a finish to one club? Yeah, no, I absolutely would. You know, I, I I do like working in the club side. You know, there's a particular focus to it. You know, um, as I say, you're 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 working for one master, if you like, and and you're trying to build something. You know, so there's a kind of sense of uh, purpose and achievement to that. You know, yeah. Um, and you do become uh, attached and and proud and passionate about the club you join as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would, I would, I would love uh, if I had the opportunity. I would, I would grab that absolutely for sure. Neil, there's another hundred things that we've probably not spoken about that I wanted to talk to you about. So maybe in future we could do another podcast. I don't know, but I've absolutely loved chatting to you. It's been fantastic and really, really interesting to get that side as well. The scout side that us fans don't don't see. We just think a player comes, he's a dud if he doesn't play well. He's a dud. It's the manager's fault. It's the scout's fault, etc. But yeah. to get all the wee nuts and bolts, which adds to that, then becoming a signing for a couple of Rangers, especially, is fascinating. So thanks, thanks very much for that. Yeah, no problem. You know, as I say, it's uh, I've been fortunate to um, experience the club at different levels, um, and I've been grateful for that over the years um, because it's been a, a huge part of my life. You know. Yeah. Thanks very much, Neil. Stay safe. Good. You too. Thank Cheers. you.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.